0: Thank you for downloading Nine Days, Nine Podcasts, a production of Pardase North America. This special series is a curated collection of premium Tisha Ba'ab content from the Pardase archives. We hope it brings additional meaning to these solemn days. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Nine Days, Nine Podcasts. This week's Parsha is Parshat Dvarim, the opening Parsha of the last book. Of the Torah. Instead of examining the Parsha this week, I would like to talk about Tisha B'Av and a story from the Talmud very much associated with it. But before I get to the story, let me note that Parshat Varim always occurs on the Shabbat before Tisha B'Av. In fact, there is a close connection. Between the Torah reading and Tisha B'Av, from chapter one, verse twelve, in Moshe's opening last remarks to the Jewish people, he says, "Echa esal levadi torchachem umas How will I bear alone your troublesomeness, your burdens, your quarrels? The word "echa" echoes the opening word of Megillat Echa the Book of Lamentations and the prevalent custom is that this verse is read to the unique tune of the Book of Lamentations which is read on Tisha B'Av eve This year Tishavav comes comes out immediately after Shabbat ends Emasechet Ta'anit chapter 4 Mishnah 6 it says that five things Five tragedies happened on the day of Tisha B'Av. The decree that the generation that left Egypt would not enter the land of Israel, the destruction of the first temple, the destruction of the second temple, the capture of Betar by the Romans, which signaled the end of the Bar Kokhba rebellion, the crushing of the Bar Kokhba rebellion, and the plowing of the city of Jerusalem in fulfillment of a prophecy in Jeremiah, which said that Zion will become as a plowed field. In our Parsha, Moshe discusses the story of the spies, the story of the spies, which culminates in the decree that a whole generation would not enter the land of Israel. According to the Mishnah that I just read, that decree happened on Tisha B'av, or to be more exact, on the night of Tisha B'av. That decree, according to the Talmud in Massechah Ta'anit, created a precedent that from then on, this day was a day marked for retribution. It set the stage for the other calamities that happened on that day. I will not go into this any further. This is something which I discussed in a previous podcast. But today I would like to examine a very famous passage in the Talmud, which describes the background and the events leading up to the destruction of the Second Temple. This is from Gitin, 55b. Among the laws of Tisha B'Av is a prohibition to study Torah. But there are some exceptions. And these passages from the Talmud in Gitin, are actually studied by people on the day of Tisha B'Av. The reason for the prohibition is because study of Torah is seen as something which makes you happy. But on Tisha B'Av we're supposed to be sad. These stories which speak about the destruction certainly do not make us happy. Yet nevertheless, they can be instructive. And perhaps can be a source of introspection. So that, if you have the opportunity, you can listen or re-listen to this podcast on Tisha B'Av. Today I'll be exploring the opening story of a series of stories. And perhaps in future years we will examine later passages. I have attached a, an Aramaic-English copy of the passage, so follow along with me. And if I am not exactly true to the translation, it's because this is a Sansino translation, and I perhaps would like to give something which is <clears throat> more freestyle. <clears throat> Rabbi Yochanan said, What illustrates the verse? Happy is the man that fears always, but one that hardens his heart shall fall into evil. What illustrates this verse? The destruction of Jerusalem, which came about through a story of Kamtsa and Bar Kamtza. And the story goes as follows. A certain man had a friend whose name was Kamtza and an enemy whose name was Bar Kamtza. And this man once made a party and said to his servant, Go and bring Kamtza. And the man, the servant, made a mistake. And he went and brought Barkamtsa. And when the master, the one who was making the party, found Barkamtsa there, he said, You who slander me, what are you doing here? Get out. And Barkamtsa said, Seeing that I'm already here, let me stay. I will pay you for whatever I eat and drink. And the man said, No then let me give you half the cost of the party. No, let me pay for the whole party. And he still said no. And this is my translation. And he picked him up and threw him out. And when this happened, Bar Kamsa said, there were rabbis who were sitting there, but nobody stopped him. This evidently shows that they agreed with him, or as we would say, they validated what he did. So therefore, I will now go and inform against them to the authorities, the Roman authorities. And so Bar went and said to the emperor, the Jews are rebelling against you. And the emperor said, how do I know? And Bar replied, send them an offering, a sacrifice, and see whether they will offer it up on the altar. And the king liked the idea and he sent Bar Kamsa off with a fine calf. While on the way, Bar Kamsa made a blemish on its upper lip, or as some say, on the white of its eye, in a place where Jews consider this to be a blemish, but non-Jews do not. When the rabbis saw this calf and saw the blemish, they were inclined to offer it, Nevertheless, in order not to offend the authorities, or as we would say nowadays, in order to not create a provocation. But Rav ben Avkula said to them, if you do that, then people will draw the wrong conclusion. They will say that blemished animals are allowed to be offered on the altar. At which point the rabbis said to him, or they proposed, I should say, let us kill Bar Kamsa, so that he will know, so that he will not go back and inform the Roman authorities against us. And once again, Rabbi Zakaria Ben Afkulas said to them, "How can you do that? Is in fact the law? Is it the law that one who makes a blemish on consecrated animals should be put to death?" And Rabbi Yochanan thereupon remarked, "Through the scrupulousness of Rabbi Zakaria Ben Afkulas." Our house has been destroyed, our temple burnt, and we ourselves exiled from our land. If I read the story on an elementary level, I can say that the major message of the story is to reflect sinat chinam, unrestrained hatred, the polarization that exists between the person who made the party and Bar Kamsa, a polarization which did not allow the one who made the party, to in any way be flexible and accommodating and allow Bar Kamsa to remain, who in no way was concerned with his dignity. And the flip side, clearly the hatred Bar Kamsa had against the rabbis, which perhaps was then extended to the general Jewish population, in order to go to the Roman authorities and in Invite this confrontation that ultimately led to the destruction of the temple. We have a passage in another place in the Talmud, which actually says that the second temple was destroyed because of sinat chinam, because of hatred, which leads to total polarization, where there is no room for dialogue. I think that this is certainly one message that comes out of this story. But I would like to see this in a much more detailed way and explore the story, go back, and note some of the details to see the complexity of what is happening here. We will not go back to the very opening verse. I'll come back to that later. But let's just begin with how the story, the background to the story. There was a man who had a friend named Kamtsa, and an enemy, Barkamtsa. And generally, when people refer to this story, it is always called the story of Kamtsa and bar Kamtza. But when you think about it, this is actually very misleading. Because Kamtsa and Barkamtsa aren't the two sides to the issue. The two sides is the man who made the party and Barkamtsa. Which therefore raises the question why don't we mention the name of the one who made the party? Why do we mention the name of Kamtza? One explanation that's given as to why we mention Kamtza is because Kamtza and Bar sound very much alike. And as a result of that, it's very understandable how the servant could have made a mistake and invited Bar instead of Kamtsa. But I would like to now look at some more possibilities. Who is this man who is making the party? The sense that we have from the context is that evidently this is someone who is a rich individual, and it seems to be that many people were invited, including the rabbis, which makes it even more remarkable that we're not told what his name is. It is interesting that there are some people who want to say that Kamsa is actually a variation of a name in Greek, which was the name of of a certain distinguished family in Jerusalem. And therefore, this would then illustrate that evidently the person who is making the party is also one of the significant, what we would call makers and shakers in Jerusalem. But as I mentioned a moment ago, so it's even more striking that his name doesn't appear. Perhaps the author of this story purposely left out his name as a put-down, as a way of saying that perhaps this man does not deserve to be mentioned by name. A kind of ironic twist. Here is someone who perhaps was so caught up with his name that the ultimate poetic justice over here is that he is nameless. Hold that explanation for a moment. What about Kamza and Bar I mentioned that there are some people who want to say that kamtza may be a variation of a Greek word, which is the name of a respected family that was in Jerusalem. Interestingly, in Aramaic, the word kamtza means a grasshopper. And then the, the story is telling us that there was a grasshopper and the son of a grasshopper. The maharal... A very famous medieval thinker who comments on various Agadic passages of the Talmud says that the word kamtza is related to the word kmitza, kmitsa which has to do with taking a handful. In the meal offerings, there would be a handful which was taken out of the offering that was then brought on the altar. And the Maharal says that kmitzah is a word which expresses separation. Division, And therefore, the Maharal says something here which is very interesting. He says that kamtza and bar kamtza basically reflect the division into factions, maybe warring factions. When the passage says there was a certain man who had a friend who was kamtza and an enemy, bar kamtza, the word in Aramaic for enemy is bal divaveh which is also not a simple expression. But there are some people who suggest devave, Dalad bet bet Yudhe is related to the Hebrew word dovev, which has to do with speech. And therefore one could say that bar kamtza was the person who was his bal devave, his disputant, someone who always argued with him. Whereas kamtza was his friend, but a person who always agreed with him. In fact, what I could say is that bar comes," the word bar, rather than translating it as son, can also be translated as outside. And it would then mean outside of his speech. And therefore, what would that mean in this section? There are the people that you hang out with, who you talk the same language as, who are part of your circle, that's kamtza. Bar Kamtsa are people whose language, whose philosophy, is something which is not part of my framework. And if they're not part of my framework, then in the end they're not part of my circle. I don't talk to them. I don't eat with them. So let me begin with this. We know in many different places that eating, and especially a party, is a bonding experience. The best example of this is the Seder. And I've spoken about this on a number of occasions. If I'm making a party, which is a bonding experience, I want to invite those people that I would like to bond with. And perhaps what this passage is saying is that people are very much entrenched in bonding with people that they agree with. There is no room to invite somebody to your party to become close to, that speaks a different language, that has a different way of looking at things. Maybe I'll take this one step further. And I admit that this is speculation. Let's jump a moment in the continuation of the story. When the man who makes the party discovers that the wrong person was invited, this is his enemy, he doesn't belong here. And there is a whole scene which we could imagine is going on and certainly the way that it culminates when he takes him and he shoves him out. And what is the response of Bar Kamtza? There were rabbis sitting there, but nobody stopped him. There is a legitimate grievance, which Bar Kamtza has. If there were rabbis there, how is it possible that nobody said anything? And let me sharpen my question. Let's assume that Bar Kamsa was really a nasty person. Let's assume that he tended to be somebody who was very obnoxious, who was very provocative, which is not so far-fetched because clearly in the continuation of the story, he is a provocative individual. Yet nevertheless, perhaps the rabbis should have found a way to mediate, and if not, to keep him there, to perhaps have at least allowed for him to have an honorable exit to have at least made a case before the one who made the party. The silence of the rabbis is deafening. And perhaps an explanation is that the one who is making the party is rich, is respectable, and the rabbis don't want to ruffle his feathers. We find in another place in the Talmud, in Masechet Sota, where it says that one of the qualities, the characteristics of the end of the second temple period was that flattery was rampant. One might even say hypocrisy. Perhaps the rabbis don't say anything because they flatter him. They want to be on good terms with the makers and the shakers. And now if I go back, maybe that's also reflected in Kamtza and why he's mentioned in the story. The Maharal says that Kamtza is the friend of the one who made the party. But the Maharal says he's not really a friend of the one who made the party. He's someone who takes sides, who likes to go with what we would call a winner, which therefore means that the picture which is now being depicted in the story is that in Jerusalem we have a very, very divided community. And in this divided community... The people who are the makers and shakers see to it that the ones who are surrounding them are the ones who share their views, but not only share their views, who reinforce their views, and not only reinforce their views, but perhaps do it as an expression of flattery, perhaps do it in a hypocritical way, not because they really believe in what they're doing, but because they want to be on the side of the winner, on the side of the powers that be. And now if I go to the other side, it is clear from the story that Bar Kamtsa is not an angel. Even if I assume that the man who made the party, and Kamtsa, and all those who were at the party, including the rabbis, are people who are obnoxious. And maybe let me just add that the one who threw him out of the party does not seem to have any compunctions. And the way that I was reading the story, it was even done perhaps in a demonstrative way, as a way of saying, when you got it, flaunt it. But even if all of that is true, why go to the Roman authorities? So the way the story is presented is, because that's how I'm going to get them in trouble. But who's getting in trouble here? At the very least, if you want to take revenge, take revenge against the one who made the party. That's not enough. You want to take revenge. Take revenge against the rabbis who were at that party. But why now indict a whole population? And perhaps now let me come back to the opening verse, where it says, happy is the one who fears always. And Rashi, commenting on this, says, what does it mean someone is afraid always? It means that someone is always weighing the ramifications of his actions. Does he just focus on the immediate situation? Or is he able to anticipate, okay, what can eventually happen as a result of this incident? And if I now look at these two people, the one who made the party, the rabbis, Bar Kamtza, no one here seems to appreciate the full ramifications of their action. The one who is making the party seems to be totally complacent. He is the maker of the party. He is the maker and shaker. He has the power. At this moment, he can totally humiliate Bar Kamsa. He doesn't even begin to think about the possibility that Bar Kamsa may strike back and what could be the full magnitude of what Bar Kamsa will do. The rabbis, perhaps they are flattering, as I said before. At the very least, perhaps they're intimidated by the one who made the party. But whichever position you take, the rabbis are somehow not aware of how this type of behavior can totally unravel their social framework. Which means that once again, they too do not appreciate what is happening here. And Bar Bar Kamsa is basically trying to strike back against the one who made the party, against the rabbis. But in effect, what he is doing is setting in motion a whole process which will ultimately bring about the destruction of the Jewish people. By going to the Roman authorities, he is bringing in, inviting an outside force, which in the end is going to destroy him as well. If I were to just stop here, I would say if the message of the story, which I mentioned at the very beginning, is the problematic of Sinat here we see there's another message, the problematic of people who do things and don't realize the full magnitude, the ramifications of their actions, which can go far beyond them and can ultimately bring about the destruction of a whole people. And basically what I was trying to show is how it isn't just one person, but it's different elements of the society who all seem to have that problem. Very interestingly, at the very end of the story, when the rabbis have to make a decision, what are they going to do with this calf? And what are they going to do with Bar kamtza, We all of a sudden see Rav Zechariah Ben Afkulas, who says, you can't offer the calf, you can't kill Bar Kamtza, so that what is, what am I left with? You basically have to let Bar Kamtza go back to the Roman authorities and corroborate that yes, in fact, the Jews are rebelling against you, and by doing that, to invite the wrath of Rome. And Rabbi Yochanan, the same Rabbi Yochanan who begins the story, remarked, through the scrupulousness. Of Rav Benafkulas, ben Avkulas. our house has been destroyed, our temple burnt, and we ourselves exiled from our land. The translation here is scrupulousness. Another way of translating it is humility, or perhaps another way of translating it, rather than humility, may even be oblivion. Rav Benafkulas ben Afkulas is dealing with this particular situation as a purist, as someone who's living in a bubble, who's totally oblivious to the reality around him. And perhaps what Rabbi Yochanan is commenting on is how could Rab Zechariah bin Avkulis be so oblivious? His living in this bubble brought about our destruction. If I backtracked, I said earlier, the rabbis who were at the party, they were flattering the rich man. Maybe they were intimidated by him. Maybe I'll offer another explanation. Maybe they were just oblivious to what was going on. They were sitting at the party, engaged in some sort of Torah discourse, and weren't paying attention to what was happening and getting involved. And perhaps what this shows is the importance of not being in a bubble, of being able to very much see the reality and to be able to think through what will be the ramifications. Rav Avkulas, Rav Zechariah ben Avkulas, is very much worried about what are people going to say about the law. They'll come to mistakes. They'll think that you can offer up blemished animals. They'll think that one who puts a blemish in an animal should be put to death. But he's so caught up with the purity of the law that he loses sight of the people. He doesn't realize that as a result of his purism, this will be seen as a provocative act and will then lead to a crushing defeat of the Jewish people, to the destruction of the temple. I would like to end with something which I've said on other occasions, but apply it here. I mentioned earlier that Kamtsa means a grasshopper, is the Aramaic translation for grasshopper. Grasshoppers are small animals, but small animals, creatures, that can bring about tremendous destruction. One of the things that characterizes them is the mass. It's not an individual grasshopper, but it's something which is happening on a mass level. There is no one grasshopper that really stands out but it's the mass which brings that about. If we were to then go with this in our context, in this story, there are a lot of little people, a lot of little people who combined bring about tremendous destruction. I mentioned in another podcast related to our Parsha, when the original story of the spies is told in the book of Numbers, the spies say about themselves, We saw giants in this land, and we were in our eyes as grasshoppers, and so we were in their eyes. And the reason why the spies demoralized the Jewish people was because they saw themselves as grasshoppers, as little people, little people who were overwhelmed by the giants that they saw, little people who perhaps the giants saw as a lot of little grasshoppers, who are a big threat, who they had to exterminate. The problem of the spies is that they should have realized that they were, or should have seen themselves as big people, people with a vision. And if I come back to our story, we have a lot of little people, each one who's caught up in their own world. And maybe I would add a world which in in a certain way is very, very petty. And maybe I'll now come to the end of the Pasuk. One that hardens his heart shall fall into evil. Each one of the people in this story is very much locked into a certain pattern of behavior. Whether it be the one who made the party, whether it be Bar Kamtza, the rabbis, Rav Zechariah ben Avkulas, each of them is locked into a certain mode of behavior, which they can't break out of. Each one is incapable of seeing beyond their limited purview. Each one does something which has gross ramifications. When we take the combined actions of many little people who have limited vision, who are locked into their particular frameworks and can't see beyond it, whose actions on a certain level can also be seen as very local, very limited. When I take the combination of them, it's deadly. It's absolutely devastating. And maybe this is what the Talmud is trying to show us in terms of what the reality was like in the second temple. It isn't just a story of one person who made a party. The one person who made a party is symptomatic of what is going on in the society at large. And whether you're rich, whether you're a rabbi, whether you're somebody who's an outsider, each one is in their own little world and somehow is not able to see the world of the other. Each one is perhaps pitted against the other. And ultimately, all of them combined invite someone from the outside to set their house in order. But the way that person will do it will be through utter destruction with the need to have to then rebuild and create something totally new. This Tisha we should contemplate who we are, what is going on in our society. How different are we than what is being described in this story? How frightening is it that human nature doesn't change that much and how perhaps people don't learn from experience? And let me just end with a comment I once made from Nachmanides, who in speaking about the famous statement in Masechet Tanit, where God says, you cried for no reason on the night of Tisha B'Av, and God's response is, I will make this a night of crying forever. On the one hand, God decreed this as a day of crying, and the Mishnah tells us of subsequent calamities which happened on that day, but it's not inevitable. If we continue to harden our hearts, if we continue to be oblivious to lessons of the past, then we bring about our destruction. But we can learn from things, we can change. This is the challenge that Tisha B'Av presents to us. This is why learning this passage is so important. Learn it not just to look at the past, but learn it to be informed about the future. Don't repeat the mistakes of the past. We have to learn how to be people whose hearts do not become hardened, who fear always. And as a result of that, who are able to change, who are able to adapt, who are able to somehow see outside of ourselves and see the other, who rather than continually constrain ourselves, lock ourselves, more and more into our limited frameworks who try to expand out to find the concentric circles the interface this is our challenge if sinat chinam is what destroyed the second temple ahavat chinam is what can build the third temple this is our challenge this is our duty shabbat shalom and may we merit to see consolation in our days Thank you again for listening to Nine Days, Nine Podcasts, a production of Purdue's North America. If you like what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening.